Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly's podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Giles from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. The Physicians Weekly podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. In this episode, we have two interviews about two completely different topics this time, although they are both about taking charge of the problem at hand. Later, Physicians Weekly's senior editor, Dr. Marta Kelly, speaks with Dr. Raina Hack, senior cancer epidemiologist in the Kaiser Permanente Southern California Department of Research. Dr. Hack recently published a study in JAMA Network Open, where they found that moderate to high levels of physical activity equal to about 15 minutes a day reduced mortality by 60% in breast cancer survivors. But first, Physicians Weekly's board member, Dr. Alex McDonald, speaks with Dr. J.W. Lee. Dr. Lee is currently the Chief Medical Officer of Share Ourselves, a federally qualified health center in Orange County, California. Respected and known as a rational, facilitative leader who motivates and empowers his team to think big and deliver on the organizational mission, his key strengths include practice transformation, health equity, strategic planning, health policy and management, and digital health or social media. He really feels that family medicine must rise up and become leaders in our communities, and he speaks about leadership. It's a lively and really fun interview. Enjoy listening. Hey everybody, I'm Alex McDonald. Welcome to the Physicians Weekly Podcast. Uh, I am very excited this week to welcome my good friend and dare I say mentor, Dr. Jay Lee, who is a an amazing family doctor from California and has done a lot of really cool things in his career, particularly when it comes to leadership and organized medicine too. So Dr. Lee, I'm going to call you Jay if that's okay. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Tell everyone a little bit uh, kind of who you are, uh, what you do, and how you got involved in organized medicine and, and leadership in general, both within your organizations and outside of that. Yeah, stoked to be here, Alex. I appreciate the invitation to share but one story of leadership and a professional fulfillment. So I'm a family physician by training. This is my 20th year out of medical school, uh, as I was so uh, dutifully reminded by my school this year that congratulations, you've reached your 20th reunion time, along with that ask for donation. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, amazing to think that I've had 20 years of a career at this point. And yeah, I, I uh, pleased to say that I would say I've had two leadership tracks. One has been the day job track, and that's, I think, comes from uh, experience and presence in an organization and opportunities arise and, you know, you decide to walk through those windows. So I've been a chief medical officer currently at a, a community health center in Orange County called Share Ourselves. I've also had leadership at other uh, FQHEs or community health centers in the past. And then I think germane to your question was around uh, organized medicine. And quite honestly, I, I never uh, in my wildest dreams expected myself to become, you know, the president uh, of the California Academy of Family Physicians, which I served in that capacity about seven years ago. And the path to get there actually was kind of interesting. It was just me at the end of residency speaking with one of my faculty mentors who then became my work BFF uh, a few years later. 
And I walked into Jeff Luther's office and I said, hey, Jeff, I know that you're kind of involved with the academy. I'm really interested in health policy stuff. Uh, how do I get involved? And he picked up the phone and called then EVP Susan Hoagland. And he said, Susan, uh, this is Jeff. I've got a live one and made the, the fishing hook signal with his hands. And that's really how that opportunity opened up for me. And from there, a few years later, you know, Dr. Tom Bent, who you and I both know, a really important family physician here in Orange County, it was president, and then he was on the nominating committee and asked if I would be interested in, in getting on the, the leadership ladder, so to speak. And at the time, I wasn't actually, I wasn't even in my 40s, I don't think. And, and I said, hey, I don't know that I have the wisdom to be on, on the leadership track like that. And he kind of cajoled me. He said, you know, do the math. By the time you get there, you'll, <laughs> you'll be old <laughs> enough and wise enough. And he wasn't wrong, you know, and I've been blessed to have both a career in leadership through organized medicine and then likewise on a parallel track uh, in my day job as well. So, yeah, it, it just being open to those opportunities and having ideas, not being afraid to speak up. You know, I think these are all things that that are a recipe for for success. Yeah, and, and you 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 failed to admit your most recent leadership position is being elected to the American Academy of Family Physicians Board of Directors on the national level as well too. So congratulations on that. It's it's funny you forgot to mention that. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> and that is that is a factual statement. Yes. <laughs> so so tell us. You know, I think a lot of us, a lot of physicians, go through their training, and leadership is not even on the radar screen. I think as physicians, we are all innate leaders in many respects, in many different areas, be it in the exam room, in our communities, in our health systems. What do you tell people that? are not sure about if leadership is something they want to pursue or if they want to just continue just to sort of, you know, see patients and, and leave the leadership, which is sometimes more of a, a headache and a hassle, quite frankly, than the challenge of just day-to-day clinical medicine. What do, you, what do you say to those people? Yeah, I would say find the spot where you can be most effective, leveraging the experience and knowledge that you have. It doesn't have to be a leadership title per se, but, you know, I think participating and leveraging your voice and using your voice is really critical. I actually would argue that that's a big piece of anti-burnout or physician wellness is the ability to feel like you have some sense of agency in terms of speaking up about a workflow or process or or pay structure, you know, those types of things. And the truth is, you know, there's a lot of individuals in any healthcare organization that are looking up to the physicians to, to speak. It's sort of like how kids will look up to their parents to sort of gauge how they should respond to things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for better or for worse, we've we had some opportunities that as a profession, I think we missed at a time when uh, the corporatization of healthcare was happening. And, you know, it was kind of the bones mentality, right? Uh, from Star Trek, you know, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a dot, dot, dot. You know, I'm not a business person. So why would I speak up on that? But the truth is, you know, uh, this is why we have things like the 15 minute visit for an ambulatory visit. No one in their right mind, if we were to design it today, would set it up that way. But that's the quote unquote widget that we're all sort of stuck with at this point. So I do think it's really critical, not just for the profession, but I would also say for your own well-being to feel like you have that sense of agency and ownership in the work that you do. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. Tell us more about uh, you know, there's a phrase which I've heard you and many others say multiple times. If, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Tell us more about that. And as we continue to, you know, 
whatever healthcare transformation may be happening, be it slowly or rapidly, be it at a, at a systems level or a, a national policy level, tell us about why it's important to have physicians really engaged in that work as well. So thank you for bringing that up. The well-used phrase, uh, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And, th- and there's truth to that, right? So if you choose to put your head in the sand, things will change around you. And it, it, uh, more often than not, it'll be for the worse. No one will have your best interest in mind as a physician, given you know the percentage of GDP that we spend on healthcare. There are a lot of, I would say, market interests in what we do and how we do it. And so I think I would argue that it kind of goes beyond the table uh, metaphor. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to be the chefs, quite frankly. But, you know, rather than take, I would say, a victim mentality as physicians, it really is important that we are at the table. And and I would argue the other piece of this is really learning that we're not the only stakeholder that's that's important. Yes, a lot of what we do drives uh, what happens in healthcare, but there are a lot of other moving parts, mm-hmm. as, as we all know, that, and those voices are as equally important. And I would say that's a leadership skill too, in and of itself, is learning how to manage expectations and manage personalities and, you know, other disciplines who are at the table that also need to have their voice heard as well. Yeah. <laughs> In, in your experience working in, in multiple different health systems, as well as in the California and the, and the American Academy of Family Physicians, tell us about how hearing from diverse perspectives has enabled you to be a better leader and to better understand the complicated, I think it's probably an understatement, but the, the complicated healthcare landscape. Yeah, uh, I think one of the best examples I can give you is the time that I was in the leadership of the California Academy of Family Physicians in uh, particularly in the executive team role where I had the opportunity to travel up and down the state. Uh, This was in the before times, you know, before COVID and really being open to listening and listening intently on and and asking questions to gain better understanding of the nuances of some of the challenges that are happening. As an urban family doc working at a community health center, you know, it was really super interesting for me to go to rural areas and Mm -hmm. hear about the challenges that rural physicians face. And so I think that part of leadership is really being open and, and listening to what folks have to say. Then, you know, and I, and I would argue this is the philosophy that a lot of organized medicine organizations approach is that they will hear from their membership and then that membership and the policy that's driven by, you know, things that come out of a Congress are what informs the decision making and the fiduciary planning that an academy has to do. And so, you know, as I'm making this transition from sort of state leadership to national leadership, you know, I'll definitely take that approach with, with the goal being to be the best listener that I can be. And in a lot of ways, those are the same skills, important skills that I use as a, as a family doctor every day in the clinic. Right. Yeah. No, I think that makes, that makes so much sense on so many levels. I, I think some personalities are attracted to certain specialties, which are maybe more inclined for those, some of those softer people skills of leadership as well, too. It's, it's always interesting to see kind of who shows up at some of these meetings as well, too, and the different personality types and different specialty types. But, but it takes a village, right? It really requires all of us 
collaborating and working together as well too. So last question here, we could go on and on all day, but I want to keep this brief and and high yield. Tell us about, you know, particularly here in California where there, there's a lot of regulations, quite frankly. Tell us about some of the advocacy efforts and the way that people can get involved. I hear a lot of challenges that people are experiencing in the day-to-day lives of, of, of clinic and patient care that are directly impacted by sometimes well-meaning legislators and elected officials who know very little about the practice of medicine and why you think that importance of advocacy, uh, both at the organization, the community, the county and the state level, because really that's what drives a lot of what is challenging us, especially in a state like California. Can you talk more about the advocacy piece and why that's important? Yeah, it's. I think the challenge is really taking a problem and distilling it down to what is the upstream piece that's causing things to be built that way or experienced that way, et cetera. And a lot of the resolution writing that happens at a Congress of Delegates or at a all-member advocacy meeting as we have for the CAFP is driven very much by those pain points that local members experience. And they bring that flavor in in a format that's digestible for everybody, right? In a standardized format, we have the whereas clauses, and then we have the therefore be it resolved clauses. And those resolved clauses are what endures beyond the meeting should the majority of the Congress uh, approve of the language. And so, uh, and that can get really complicated pretty fast, meaning, you know, the words are are actually quite important. And so I've seen multiple times where <clears throat> stuff has come and everyone's like, oh, that's totally obvious. And it goes and it just passes just like that. And then there have been other times where it's a little bit grayer and there's nuances and that language needs to come back year after year and it gets stronger as a result of the feedback that's given. And so I think that's really where the, that power can come from individuals who are experiencing challenges or sort of unique circumstances in their practices. The question is, you know, how do we translate that into something that is, I would say, applicable to a vast swath of family docs, in this case, across the state? And that's really the, I would say, that's sort of the fun, nerdy part of uh, doing this sort of leadership work and the advocacy piece, because then you can bring that same energy. You know, it doesn't have to be nerdy when it comes to going and speaking with the legislators. In fact, it's even better just to bring stories and to, to come wearing your white coat and never wearing clinic and, and share your story in a real humanizing way to help folks understand 300 miles away, you know, in Sacramento, I'm, we're both in Southern California. So, you know, 300 miles away in, in, in Sacramento, what the specific challenges are that we're facing and how difficult it is to actually care for patients given some of the funny ways that we set up the system. <laughs> that, you know, you must be running for a political office one day based on your nuances and your language there. So, <laughs> okay, last question, and then, we'll, and then we'll wrap this up. What what would you tell somebody, someone who is maybe, you know, mid-career or younger in their career who's interested in sharing their voice and in leadership growth and development, what, what would you recommend for them? Yeah, I, I would say several things. One is just understand what gets you hot or gets you excited. You know, know know who you are and know know what you are interested in. The second thing would be, you know, don't try to go and find the perfect opportunity. I would say find an opportunity that in your mind is good enough. It's going to be plenty good. And as long as that soil and the substrate are are strong, you can you can grow something on it, right? And so and, and then you can build that. And I think 
building on that experience is what I would say gives you some street cred with those who maybe have a little bit grayer hair. And I would actually seek out those folks with grayer hair and with years of experience under their belt, you know, the PGY 20s, right? Uh, right go and exactly. seek them out because we're, we're interested in helping. And, and a lot of us are in that generative stage in our career where mm-hmm. it's not just about building our own careers, but truly it's about, I would say, molding the future, you know, the specialty and, and of, of medicine writ large. And so I spoke a lot about little L legacy during my president year as we were wrapping up. And that really is what it's about. We all want to leave behind that little L legacy, that lasting impact on, on the care for patients in California. Well, I love that. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and sharing some of your your wisdom with us, uh, despite all the, the gray hair it may have caused. Or I don't know, did the gray hair cause the wisdom or did the wisdom cause the gray hair? I'm not sure which way that works. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. I, all I know is that COVID has accelerated the growth of gray hair, particularly in my beard. So Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I wasn't going to say anything, but I did notice that. So. <laughs> no. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate this. It means a lot to be able to share your experiences on the national level. I'm really excited to see your, your continued leadership at the national level with the American Academy of Family Physicians and perhaps beyond, but we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that. Excellent. Thank you so much, Alex. Next, just to remind you, we have Physicians Weekly Senior Editor, Dr. Marta Kelly, interviewing Dr. Raina Hack about moderate exercise integration to improve survival in breast cancer survivors. I'm here today with Dr. Rena Hawk. She is with Kaiser Permanente Southern California Department of Research. She's a senior cancer epidemiologist there. And today we're going to discuss a study that she had published in JAMA Network Open about how even moderate physical activity is associated with a significantly decreased risk of all-cause death in long-term breast cancer survivors. Hello, Dr. Hawk. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. That's right. It's morning where you are. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, what makes this study, Association of Physical Activity with Risk for Mortality Among Breast Cancer Survivors, an important topic to study? What needs existed? Well, let me address your second question first about the gap in research. Although low physical activity is linked with developing cancer for the first time, There's mixed data on how physical activity can affect survival after a woman is diagnosed with cancer. And this is an important topic to study because cardiovascular disease is one of the leading causes of death in women diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. And um, as you may know, exercise has positive effects on the body, such as lowering blood pressure, reducing inflammation, modulating insulin, and lowering obesity. And these positive effects may also apply to survival after a breast cancer diagnosis because cardiovascular disease and cancer share overlapping biological pathways. Can you explain how you and your colleagues set out to determine the study and how you went about doing the research? Sure. Um, In this study, we set out to determine the association of physical activity with the risk of all-cause mortality among breast cancer survivors. And this was a longitudinal cohort study in which we recruited 315 women who had completed their primary breast cancer treatment. And we interviewed them at a baseline survey using a questionnaire that captures weekly physical activity habits. Uh, The participants were from diverse backgrounds and included about 30% women of color. 
And our baseline interviews started in 2013, actually. And then we followed up our participants through the study's end, which was April 2022. And we identified deaths that occurred during the study's follow-up period. Uh, the median follow-up period was about eight years after the baseline interview. So that, in a nutshell, is our study design. <laughs> what were the key findings from your study? And what would you stress to our physician readers, particularly uh, gynecologic oncologists or other people who work with breast cancer survivors? Sure. Um, our study suggests that cancer survivorship care plans should consider incorporating physical activity because these even moderate activity is vital for extending survival as well as enhancing quality of life. And specifically, compared to women who didn't exercise, our results show that even moderate physical activity was associated with a 60% lower risk of death among breast cancer survivors. And this was similar for breast cancer survivors who were more active. Um, these results were statistically significant. And an example of moderate physical activity is walking every day for about 15 minutes or more. So we believe these results offer encouragement to patients and show that one doesn't need to train like an Olympic athlete to reap the benefits of exercise. And um, finally, what would you like to see future research focus on in this area? What needs still exist? I think future research should look at whether exercise protects against health outcomes that might occur earlier in life in breast cancer survivors, like cancer recurrence or cardiovascular disease that may be related to their breast cancer treatment. And exercise might be a great non-medical way to offset the negative effects of cancer or its treatments. Anything else you'd like to add? I think that uh, our study is important in that our findings have implications for counseling patients diagnosed with breast cancer. That is, that is even moderate exercise of exer exercise may extend life. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 